Good to see all of you today, have all of you here. I suspect it's probably true that there are, as you come into the sanctuary today, there are probably a lot of things on your mind and uh, related to the Christmas. And sometimes it gets a little fuzzy and sometimes it gets a little fatiguing. And it's important for us to be able to, and we want to, really keep our, our focus on Christ. And I have to just say by way of introduction this morning before I read our text, this might be a bit of an unusual sort of Christmas sermon because because it really focuses us outward. That is its intention. And maybe to help us get out of our heads a little bit, uh, which is easy to happen in this time of year, and, uh, and to think broadly, think more broadly about Christ. Now our text this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, in the second chapter, and uh, I'm simply going to read to you the fifth um, cameo or section of Matthew's story of Jesus' birth. And um, this is what we read, beginning it, picking it up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. Um, An angel of the Lord directed Joseph and his family through a dream down to Egypt to protect Jesus from being killed by Herod. He directed the Magi, the Lord directed the Magi, uh, away from Jerusalem and away from Herod after seeing and meeting Jesus so that Herod wouldn't know where he is. And when Herod found out he'd been tricked, he was outraged and he slaughtered all the children in Bethlehem, the boys who were two years of age younger, assuming that with that sweep of slaughter, the baby Jesus, whoever this so-called king of the Jews was, would be included, but of course he was not. And so as we begin in verse 19, we read this, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod was no more. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, this was Herod's son, was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I'd just like to send a brief word, if you don't mind. Uh, Nancy, I know I have some pictures, but they'll come toward the end of the message. But Nancy Seibeck down here, she's so faithful. I mean, she's just back here. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to... Say something, maybe a, a bit of a surprise to you also in this way this morning, that the last verse of our text, the text that I just read, he shall be called the Nazarene, is actually the climax of Matthew's story of Jesus' birth. It leads to this point. Uh, the apostle has punctuated each part of his story saying something like, so it was written by the prophet, and so we learned of Jesus' conception and a virgin so we learned of his birth in Bethlehem so we were told of his flight to Egypt so we were told of Herod's slaughter of the male babies and the toddlers in Bethlehem but the one 
prophetic fulfillment that he intended to leave ringing in our ears is the last one. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And this sets the stage for what happens to the rest of the gospel. Matthew has been leading us on a journey. He's been leading on us a journey that began at Bethlehem, that avoided Jerusalem, that took us down to Egypt, and now that ends in Nazareth. And he has explained why each step is necessary, or was necessary practically, why each step is significant prophetically. He's making his case, he's just made his case, that Jesus growing up in Nazareth, of all places, far and away from discrediting him as the Messiah, served actually to confirm what the prophets had written. This was his climactic point. There is a defense of the faith that is present in Matthew's presentation of Jesus' birth. And I want us to consider that this morning. I want that to be actually our focus you know, drawn from prophecy, the, the popular Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that the son of David would be born in Bethlehem and he would reign from where? Oh, that is really meager. He would reign from where? Jerusalem. Of course he would reign from Jerusalem. And the idea that Israel's greatest son, the son of David, would live in obscurity, largely avoid Jerusalem, be rejected by the nation. That was an absolutely unthinkable scandal that Israel would treat its Messiah that way. And it was as unthinkable in terms of Israel treating the Messiah that way as it was to think that God would allow his son to be treated that way. And even today, the scandal of the cross, by which I mean God's son dying a humiliating death on a cross, is held unthinkable, not only by the Jews of the world, but also by the world's Muslims. They do not believe the Son of God died on a cross. But then there was also that other prophetic portrait of the Messiah, not of the reigning Messiah, but of an obscure Messiah, scorned and rejected. And you know of this. Uh, David wrote in Psalm 22, that great psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wrote uh, in Psalm 118, it was written of him that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this is God's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. You have Zechariah portraying the Messiah as entering Jerusalem on a lowly donkey of being, uh, being pierced by his people. And of course, most famously, Isaiah wrote, for he grew up like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by men. So alongside this, this portrait of Messiah, as, a highly, as the highly accredited Emmanuel, God with us, you also have this image and picture of Messiah given as the discredited Nazarene. Seen as no account. 
Matthew alludes to this other portrait then when he's naming Jesus the Nazarene, and he insists that this Nazarene status is no ground for rejecting him, although the rejecters will invoke this ground for rejecting him. But rather, this is ground for the opposite. This, conf- this confirms him as the promised Messiah. It's quite a turning of the tables. But you know, when you look at this passage, there is a rub. And the rub in this passage is this, that nowhere in the Old Testament do we read that Messiah would grow up in Nazareth. In fact, the town of Nazareth did not exist during the Old Testament period. It didn't exist until after the Old Testament scriptures had been written. And so the question is, how in the world do we respond to this? You look at the placement of this prophecy in, in uh, Matthew's story, and, and you can't help but conclude it's extremely significant. But then when you hear this, you think, wow, what is happening here? And I want to make a couple of observations to you this morning about that. The first is, Matthew does not say that the prophets wrote the Messiah would live in Nazareth. He does not say that. Jesus living in Nazareth was the providential means to the end that was prophesied. And the end that was prophesied is that others would call him a Nazarene or simply Nazarene. That this would be the way he would be known. That this is the way he would be viewed. The second thing I want to note with you is the plural. Matthew says that this fulfilled the prophets, plural. Not a particular prophet, as when he had early, earlier cited the uh, Emmanuel prophecy from Isaiah seven fourteen or the Bethlehem birth prophecy from the prophet Micah. In fact, there's only one other instance in the entire Gospel of Matthew where it's ever said, so was fulfilled the prophet's. And I think the context was somewhat analogous to this in this respect, that Matthew here is summing up the messages of the prophets as they coalesce to give us an image of Christ and of how Christ would be identified, how he would be characterized, Nazarene. We've already seen that Matthew's idea of prophecy fulfilled is more elastic than many of ours. We tend to think only of individual prophecies that were explicitly predictions from an individual prophet or particular prophet. And so what we tend to do as we read this passage, I think, is that we tend to focus on that word Nazarene and then go into the hunt and say, where do we find that word in the Old Testament? But I would just tell you, it's true. If you study Matthew, you will come to the same conclusion. Matthew simply did not approach prophecy in such a restricted way. He simply didn't. By use of this plural for prophets, what Matthew is focused on is this broader portrait of a rejected Messiah when he wrote. And uh, he was writing about, and, and he wrote this as a response to those who discredited and dismissed him and said, your very rejection of him, the grounds for which you reject him, this view you have of him, this even also was part of the prophetic message. This even is a fulfillment to show us that Christ is the Messiah. 
Well, you might take just, uh, for example, with me. Let's just take Isaiah as an example. At the same time, he, mis- he prophesied Messiah's virgin birth in Isaiah 7, and of course his worldwide reign throughout the book of Mas- um, Isaiah, especially as you go later in Isaiah. He also prophesied Messiah's rising from obscurity, that the light of Christ would shine where? From where? Galilee. Not just Galilee, he said in Isaiah 9, but Galilee of the Gentiles, described as a place of darkness, described as an unholy place defiled by pagans. We know this was on Matthew's mind. Matthew will quote that passage also in the early part of Matthew 4. Look with me for a moment. Think with me about the themes that have resonated again and again in these birth narratives. Those of you who've been who have been with us these last weeks, know this. In Matthew's story of Jesus' birth, they include that because Jesus was God's Messiah, because he's the Messiah, even as an infant, he was constantly at risk for rejection at death, in need of God's intervention and protection. And yet at the same time, in a certainty, living in the midst of the certainty that God would fulfill his word. And the fact then that Matthew concludes this account by labeling Jesus a Nazarene, saying this is what he would be called as a Nazarene, foreshadows his entire life. That these conditions that we've just studied will continue throughout the course of his entire life. But it does raise another question. Why would Matthew so heavily rely on this word Nazarene? Because its significance does not lie in its use by the prophets, because they did not use it. Its significance lies in its contemporary meaning, its contemporary usage in Matthew's day as virtually an epithet. Think with me for a minute about this, about Galilee in general. Do you remember how the Pharisees and the scribes rebuked Nicodemus when he suggested that uh, Jesus was a prophet. They rebuked Nicodemus. They dismissed the possibility by saying this, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet ever arises from Galilee. You remember early in Jesus' ministry. Remember how Nathaniel, who was himself a Galilean, he was himself a Galilean from Capernaum. How he responded when Philip reported to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And what was Nathanael's response? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was in Galilee. In other words, When you listen to this rejection, this repudiation, this disapproval, what we realize is that Nazareth was the Galilee of Galilee. Nazareth was the rejected of the rejected. And the tragic irony extends to the fact that even Nazareth himself rejected its own son. As Jesus put it, he was given no honor even in his own hometown, but rather an attempt and perhaps the first attempt to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. Now, why do I stress this today? Well, in part, I stress this this morning because Jesus, the Nazarene, this Nazarene association with Jesus 
extends to his disciples. It extends to the church today. And it's evident in many parts of the world. And in some parts of the world very explicitly. I'm coming to see more and more that our solidarity with a persecuted church, our solidarity in identifying with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ is not just a paramount Christian priority for us. It is paramount for our identifying with Christ. It's part of how we identify with Christ. Jesus spoke of this, especially as he described those rendered imprisoned or naked or hungry as the least of his brethren. And he said, to the extent you do this, care for them, for the least of my brothers, you have done it for me. And I take that very, very seriously. And first and foremost, I do believe he's talking about persecuted disciples. When we view Christmas through Matthew's telling of the story, the plight of the persecuted are very real. And they're very similar to Jesus' own. Jesus taught his disciples, didn't he? He said, a disciple is not above his master, nor a servant. I'm sorry. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household. In other words, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, they'll call you Beelzebub or Beelzebub, whatever the demonic, demonic name is. And that's really tantamount to saying, if they malign me, they'll malign you. In fact, if they malign me as a Nazarene, they'll malign you also as Nazarene. You know, in Acts chapter 24, three decades after Pentecost, three decades after Jesus crucifixion and resurrection there was another jewish priest not caiaphas but ananias stood he was standing before another roman governor not pontius pilate but felix in caesarea and he was making his case he was making his case against the apostle paul and this is the way he made his case against the apostle paul he said For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. What good could possibly come from Nazarenes? Nothing good could come from Nazarenes. And if you'd lived in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish context, you would have understood exactly, exactly what, they, what Caiaphas meant. He was not saying all these people are from Nazareth. That's not at all what he was saying. Paul certainly wasn't from Nazareth. And I would remind you this morning that in 2014, when the Islamic State captured Mosul in Iraq and made that tortured city its capital, it began the systematic murder of Christians. It was a hideous slaughter. You know that if you saw pictures. It involved children. It involved adults. And what you may not recall about that slaughter was that it began by mark the marking of Christian homes with this symbol. Can we see the symbol on the screen? It looks like a U, but it's not. It's an Arabic consonant. 
It's the consonant N, pronounced noon. And that's the way you see it. Now, what did it look like when it was marked on a home? Let's see the next slide. That's an example in Mosul. You see the noon at the end after the script? That noon stands for Nasrani, which is the Arabic word for Nazarene. The Christians who were marked for extermination were called Nazarenes. And unless they agreed to convert to Islam, or unless they fled, they were simply killed. They were simply being murdered. And the murder and the slaughter of the Christians in Mosul was one of the things that really stirred the world to say, ISIS must be controlled and destroyed. If you read the Quran 14 times, the followers of Jesus are labeled as Nazarenes. And this term, in virtually all of its context, overwhelmingly, clearly, is negative. And as you may know, that in Islam, Jesus is not called the Christ. He's called the Nazarene. Well, in respect to the, the plight of the Christians in Mosul, one of the things that happened was that people in the United Kingdom and in the United States, and again, taking to social media to protest. And the way they protested was by marking an Arabic N on their own hands to show their, their solidarity with Mosul's Christians. Can we just have the next picture? This would be the last one. You see, that's a young man who put the, the noon on his hand. I'm a Nazarene too. I'm identifying with these people. I am identifying with these people. Beginning this month on December 9th in Chengdu, China, authorities launched a campaign of persecution, threat, and arrest against 100 members of the Early Reign Covenant Church. On December 11th, two days later, in the southern Indian state of Telangana, Hebron Church suffered the first of three attacks in five days. We've all heard about Asiya Bibi, who was, who was acquitted of violating the blasphemy law in Pakistan. We're glad for that. She hasn't been allowed to leave Pakistan yet. But what you probably are not aware is, is that on December 14th, two more Pakistani Christians were sentenced to death for allegedly insulting Muhammad and violating the blasphemy law. And in both those cases, and I suspect most of them, but I haven't checked each case, But in both those cases, it was a matter of someone who was angry at the Christian who accused them of doing this. And in accusing them of doing this or in setting them up for rest, the rest is followed. So I'd suggest to you this morning that if it's Christmas, we remember Christ as Matthew told the story, not only as Luke has told us. We will worship him who came to endure scorn, and violence for us. And we will surely remember as well, as part of our identifying with Christ, those who who have come to endure scorn and violence because of him. Because they too are Nazarenes, and the world is not worthy of them either. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we've looked at this passage of Matthew and We've looked at what has to be the most obscure citation in the New Testament of a prophecy fulfilled. Uh, We've sought to understand the significance of it. 
And I pray that uh, two things. First of all, that you teach us all, like Terrence has been teaching us in the hermeneutics class, that you teach us all that when we come to your word and a passage that is difficult or that is hard to understand or that is often cited as an object of scorn for dismissing the entire truth of the word, that you would cause us to pause and to not back away from the word, but really to study the word all the more, to learn more, and to ask you to show us and to lead us. And even if our first steps don't lead us to the fullest understanding of a passage, our steps taken in faith to understand your word will lead us closer to all that you have in mind for us by that word. And we will glorify you for it. This morning I want us to pray particularly for the persecuted Christians, the persecuted church. This is a, a happy gift-giving time in the West, in the West, and particularly among, uh, well, uh, everywhere in the West. But in most of the world, this is one of the most dangerous times of the year for Christians. And we do pray, Lord, in their behalf, that you not let a hair fall from their heads apart from your sovereign will, and that where we can and how we can, we will identify with them, we will lift our hand along with them. We will place the dreaded N letter on our own hand, if necessary, in order to be defenders of the weak um, and of those who are treated unjustly. And I pray this for your glory and for the peace and the prosperity of your church around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.